Now, if Jesus had had no regard for the temple, three aspects of his ministry would have been incomprehensible. First would be the fact that much of his teaching and discoursing occurred within the temple. And second is that he healed in the temple area. And if he had thought of it as corrupt or as hopelessly blasphemed, he could not have performed such healings. And third, he spoke of it, as we have already said, in reverential terms, and in his last and prophetic discourse on the Mount of Olives, in uh, Matthew 24, he speaks and weeps of the destruction to come. And that's in connection with the incident as he comes apparently from the North Country and for the last time to the Holy City, when he looked out and said, O Jerusalem, how oft I would have gathered thee, and ye would not. Gathering, we know, is a physical gathering to make possible the pouring out of the blessings of the house of the Lord. In the third chapter of John, prior to Jesus going northward and meeting the Samaritan woman at the well, the incident is inserted of a visit which occurred at night when a Pharisee named Nicodemus comes to Jesus. The record indicates he was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. This was a body of some 70 men composed of some Sadducees uh, who were the priests, some Pharisees who were the scribes, and in addition some lay elders who were of the aristocracy, and over them all a high priest presided. The question of why Nicodemus comes at night has usually been answered with the idea that he was in fear of the Jews, which is to say in fear of being seen with Jesus. But it may also reflect an ancient custom which was that men came together at night to study and study very carefully the law. Neither of those is important, really, except to indicate that Jesus deals with Nicodemus in an open and frontal way. And we gather from between the lines that Nicodemus was a reluctant, or at least a beginner, a reluctant believer in Jesus. So he says to him, in effect, you are clearly a man of God, else how could you perform the works you perform? And Jesus' immediate response is, I solemnly assure you that no one can see the kingdom of God without being begotten. Now the word see is different than the later verse, enter when he says, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God. And the meaning from the original language is not simply to see with the eye, although that's part of it, but to uh, encounter or to be involved in, to recognize, in short, with the full self. Nicodemus is apparently surprised and replies, in effect, what? Can a man re-enter his mother's womb? Jesus replies that 
No one can enter the kingdom without being begotten both of water and spirit. And then makes a reference and comparison to the wind. Now it's interesting that in most of the places where Jesus taught and through which he traveled, there are winds. In Jerusalem, for example, almost every afternoon, a firm east wind, and in the Galilee in the afternoon, a keen wind that even can stir up disastrous storms. Jesus says of the wind that it bloweth where it listeth, which means, in effect, that the wind has, as it were, a mind of its own. And then he says to Nicodemus, you hear the sound it makes, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone begotten of the Spirit. Nicodemus is still confused. How can all this happen? And Jesus, mildly reprimanding, says, you are a teacher in Israel, and you don't understand these things? What if I teach you about heavenly things? In fact, he has taught a heavenly principle, the idea being that the Spirit of God performs a quiet miracle in the souls of those who are quickened by it. And to be born or to be begotten brings one into the realm of the flowing or outpouring of the wind, which is the Spirit. Moreover, in the exchange, men of authority are teaching each other. And we learn that in the sequel, and there are many traditions about this, Nicodemus, along with Joseph of Arimathea, both of them high officials, were not only persuaded, but eventually became, at least the tradition says, quickened by the power of God by receiving baptism and entering into the kingdom of God. We turn now to the incident at Jacob's well. We read that Jesus went north and had to go through Samaria. Now Samaria brought him to the town called Shechem, or in present-day Israel, Nablus. And this place was associated with the life of the ancient Joseph. It was the site of Jacob's well. And to that well, Jesus came, tired from his journey, apparently near noon. And as he sat, a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Incidentally, we know that the pattern of water drawing usually was to do it in the early morning or in the evening, but not in the heat of the day. And it is possible that this woman chose to come then because no one else would be there, because her life was one of which she was in a measure ashamed. In any case, Jesus spoke to her, a thing which would later surprise his disciples, for Jews were expected to have no conversation with the Samaritans, and said simply, give me a drink. In the meantime, his disciples had gone away, apparently to buy food. The woman, herself surprised at his address, says, You are a Jew, 
How can you ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? And Jesus replied, If only you recognized God's gift and who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would have asked him instead, and he would have given you living water. Now she is incredulous and says, You haven't even a bucket, and this well is deep. The present-day well, incidentally, which is thought to be the exact and ancient one, is about a hundred feet deep. Where then, she says, are you going to get this flowing water? Surely you don't pretend to be greater than Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it with his own sons and flocks. Jesus replied, Whosoever shall drink of this well shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water which I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman then said, Sir, which was an address of admiration, give me of this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. And that the woman said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidst thou truly. And the woman then said, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Now immediately she runs to those she knows in the immediate area and says to them, Come and meet a man who knows everything I have ever done. But before that there is an exchange that reflects the customs of the time and the differences of faith. The Samaritans still held that the most sacred mount was the mount known as Gerizim, and claiming direct descent in their Passover practices from the ancient world, they remained there, and they looked upon the Jews who held that Jerusalem and the Jerusalem temple were the primary place of worship as either infidels or as a sect that had broken away from the true faith. We also know that the number of Samaritans in the time of Jesus was far greater than we ordinarily suppose. It could have been as many as a million. Today there are fewer than 1,000. The woman says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And she's obviously referring to Gerizim. And then she says to him, Ye say, she sees him to be a Jew, that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Interestingly, the phrase God is spirit or God is a spirit is absent in the Joseph Smith translation as it is in certain early Greek manuscripts. And the exact reading is as follows. The hour cometh, and now is, 
when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. For unto such hath God promised his spirit. There is, of course, a sense in which God is spirit, as there is a sense in which man is spirit. But ultimately, we must understand that God is a person, a spirit personality, and that we are made in his image. Now the moment which may be the first time publicly Jesus has said that he is the Messiah. The woman says, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak unto thee am the Messiah. Shortly his disciples return, marvel that he's talking with a Samaritan woman, and then offer him food. And he replies, I have me to eat that ye know not of. At this his disciples say to each other, you don't suppose that uh, someone has brought him already food? And this then becomes the occasion for Jesus' explanation of the power of doing the will of God. He says, in effect, doing the will of God and bringing his work to completion, this is my food. In the language of Joseph Smith, this is more than my meat and drink. Then he says, Say not ye that there are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest? Behold, I say unto you, Lift up your eyes, and look on the fields. They are white, already to harvest. And he who reaps, receives wages, and gathers fruit unto life eternal. That both he that soweth, and he who reapeth, may rejoice together. And herein is the saying true, One soweth, and another reaps. We finish this episode with a contextual comment on the water-related miracles of Jesus. We have earlier spoken of his turning water into wine. And there is symbolism in the uh, idea that Jesus is a second Adam and a second Moses and that Moses struck a stone anciently and out flowed water. This is the same Moses who had pled that all the Lord's people could become prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them all. And now, acting as a sole prophet to produce the many waters for his famished people, Moses, who had delivered them from the destruction of the Red Sea, or as the Jews say, the reed sea, had provided water to save them from being famished. Now, Jesus' own water-related miracles include three sites that are in or around Jerusalem. One of them is the Pool of Siloam, where eventually he would send a blind man to be healed. Another was the Pool of Bethesda, which was used for the cleansing of the lambs before their use in the temple sacrifice but was also the area where he healed a man 38 years infirm. And the other water 
connected miracle was in connection with the Feast of Tabernacles, which includes a water-drying ceremony. And on this occasion, the Jews had brought water from the earlier lower pool, the Pool of Siloam, somehow in token of the end of the water year and in prayer that they could begin a new and fruitful year. And in that very setting, Jesus calls himself the source or the stream of living water. On other occasions, he had promised, uh, for example, during the Feast of Passover, that he would or was to be the Passover bread, the manna from heaven. Now, in the setting of the Tabernacles Feast, he is identifying himself as the source of living water. And in a later chapter of John, he not only does this, but says that all those who have true faith in him, or he that believeth in me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And the verse that follows says, Now this spake he to them of the Spirit, capital S. Now there are two sequels to the incident of, of the woman at the well. And one is that she, running to her friends, gathers them in curiosity. And Jesus tarries for two days in the area and teaches them. They besought him, says the record, that he would tarry. And we're told that many more of them believed because of his own word. The woman had become convinced because of his insight or discernment into her life. It was his knowledge rather than anything he had done that convinced her he was indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. We don't know what he taught the others, but at the conclusion of those teachings, they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying. We have heard for ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So he himself harvested from the field that was white. The other sequel takes him back to Cana, where we began. He came again, it says, into Cana of Galilee, and it explains, strangely, that uh, he did so because a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. Cana was near his own area, as we have observed. But as he arrives there, he meets, quote, a certain nobleman. Now remember that we're probably talking here of a Roman authority, and remember that Rome had a dynasty of cruelty and ruthlessness, which in this area had exploded in an uprising. And yet, when Jesus learns from this man, first, that he has a son who is ill, and second, that he has faith in him, then he acts to heal. We read the following. When he, the nobleman, heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe? I'm putting a question mark there, even though the text does not. And the nobleman replies, Sir, Come down before my child die. 
which is an implicit testimony that he is not asking for signs and wonders. His concern in faith is that his child live, and he has faith that Jesus can so decree. And Jesus, in what could be called a remote control miracle, does not undertake a journey to Capernaum. He simply says, Go thy way, thy son lives. And the father believes him and went his way. Now, when he arrives at Capernaum, the servants meet him and say, obviously in jubilation, Your son is alive. And then he asks, in effect, When did he begin to mend? And they explain to him, At the seventh hour the fever left him. And this happened to be the exact hour when Jesus had said, Thy son will live. Then says the record, just as the woman had testified, Thou art the Messiah, he testifies, This is the Messiah.